This is The Shift Podcast. Hey, thanks for checking out The Shift Weekend Podcast with John Jang. And on this episode, we celebrate National Retro Day and ask you, what's your favorite retro item? And would you use Twitter if you had to start paying for its service? We chat with Andy Barrar about the big announcement from Twitter this week. Then we get into a conversation about the South China Sea and what's happening there could act as a precedent for what could eventually happen closer to home in the Arctic. Finally, another lesson in learning Portuguese with Leonardo. This Saturday, depending on whether it's today for you now or tomorrow, as you could still be on the West Coast, Saturday February 27th is National Retro Day, a day where you are supposed to celebrate all things that are retro, all things that are old school, all things that are traditional, right? So my question to you tonight, what is your favorite retro thing? It can be an object. It can be a lifestyle. It can be whatever, Right, So here are some suggestions to maybe get this all started. And again, 877-399-9898. When we're talking about retro objects, jukeboxes, right? How about drive-in movie theaters? How about penny arcades? Pay phones, right? Or like even just a physical landline phone. Those things are also disappearing. How about retro video game consoles like the Atari? or even the, uh, the original Nintendo. And what about language? And when I say language, I don't mean like Latin language. I mean like when you even just go back to the way people used to speak to one another more eloquently, right, with a little bit more sophistication in class. Like we know now as generations are, you know, we continue to get older, the younger generation continues to get older, as we get younger and younger and as we continue to move forward in time, we're dumbing down our language, right? And, and a part of that was because of the internet and the fact that we came up with acronyms for everything like LOL, OMG, WTF. All of that really came through the internet because I guess we decided uh, I'm not going to bother spending five more seconds typing out the entire thing. I'm just going to tell you in three little letters what I'm thinking or how I'm feeling. But there used to be a time, Leonardo, when we would greet each other like, salutations, good sir. How are you on this fine, spectacular, beautiful morning? And then you would reply with, oh, tally-ho, I am fine on this very beautiful day. Ah, all of the miles we have trekked for naught just kidding. We are here for spectacular reasons to embrace thine day or something like that. You know, I don't even know. I'm 30 years old. Who knows? But all I'm saying, what is your favorite retro thing? You can let us know. 877-399-9898. Leo, what about you? Mr. Old School? Are you just retro? Like you are just retro every single day? I think I'm like retro for because I, I, I see this new stuff that it's all around. I, I can't relate to pretty much anything that's current. Hmm. So, I have my old habits. I don't know. I I I I, I love vinyls, but I think vinyls have oh. returned. Do you have a record player? Uh yes, I do. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. And, I, and I love it. and and you know, like it's different. Like, cause when I'm listening to music on the phone, I usually I'm doing other stuff. But when I have listening to the record player, you're doing just that. I'm not doing anything else. Yeah, so yeah. Just stop. It's 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 a thing. It used to be like that in the past. Like you can put a radio on in the background. You can put on like a like a like a podcast in the background. But when you put something on the record player, an actual vinyl, 
you don't just tune your mind off. You want to listen. You want to enjoy it, right? It's exactly yeah. that. Like yeah. it's different. If I'm listening to music on the phone, I'm doing other stuff and everything yeah. else. But no, that I guess that's you could call that a retro thing. Ah, I think I think that applies. I think that applies. Eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. We got this one from Blue Man saying, "How about lava lamps? Yeah, lava lamps. Definitely. There used to be a time where owning lava lamps actually came." cool again like i say that with air quotes like cool um because i think it's always been cool personally but now at some point society decided no you're not supposed to have lava lamps anymore which is a shame because they used to be fun i used to have one right but then somebody decided nah they're not cool anymore whoever that person is oh honey i wish i could just meet them and uh, i'd have some strong opinions to share with them you know uh, Lyle and Kamloops writes, how about a 1946 Harley Davidson knucklehead? Ooh, okay. See, that's that's retro with style. It is, eh? Huh. Grant in Penticton says, growing old is mandatory. However, growing up is optional. Well said. Well said. That's wisdom. That is wisdom. Anthony in Edmonton says, 10 cents toilet stalls. That's gone. 10 cent toilet stall. Like, was that a thing? Mm-hmm. Here in Vancouver, like if you go to downtown Vancouver, one of the things, by the way, that bothers me about the city of Vancouver, there aren't enough public bathrooms, especially along the SkyTrain, right? Like the most important piece of public transit in this city and actually in the entire region of the lower mainland, you would think, well, there should be public bathrooms at every stop, but there isn't, which is mind boggling. So if you, if, I mean, if you're a poor person or a poor schmuck, rather, that has to take the SkyTrain all the way from, let's say, King George SkyTrain Station, and you have to take a trip all the way down to Waterfront, which is about an hour. I mean, you know, most people, maybe you're able to manage and say, ah, I can control my bladder. It's not a big deal. But nature calls. What do you do? So paying for a bathroom, uh, I, I, I can get behind it if it means there's just more of them. Vancouver doesn't have enough of them. And I brought this whole story up simply because in downtown Vancouver now, uh, in, the, in recent years, they've installed little bathroom stalls in the middle of the, you know, um, not the middle of the street, but like in, in busy intersections and busy pedestrian traffic areas. They have little bathroom stalls that are free. But now they're considering also installing more of the ones that you have to pay. I'm not sure the price. Maybe some are a quarter. Maybe some are a dollar. But, uh, you know, it, it, the prices help maintain the bathroom and, and all the utilities and resources and things like that. Interesting thing. Maybe someone's listening right now that works for Translake or the city and they're thinking, wow, we need more bathrooms. John is talking about it. I've always wondered about that when I'm, when I'm wandering around mm-hmm. here. What, how come, man? Like even even well, charge for like 10? Yeah, like in, in other places in the world, when you have the subway or if you have like just a busy transit line, it's, it's just understood you should provide basic services like a bathroom. And in Korea, in all their extensive subway networks, there's almost always a bathroom that's accessible right, just right, by, the, right by the train station. And so it, it didn't make sense to me that the SkyTrain doesn't have those things set up. It seems so simple. But I digress. Uh, 877-399-9898. Talking about retro things. What's your favorite retro item? Derek says, hands down, it's those milkshakes that you used to get at the old school diners. There is just something about classic milkshakes. They've changed over the years. And Derek, you might be onto something. Nothing like a good hand, hand, uh, what's the word? Like hand twisted hand. I'm forgetting now. I don't drink a lot of milkshakes. But the thick milkshakes. I, I know exactly where you're coming from. And Derek, maybe... To sort of expand on that a little bit, 
it's not just the milkshakes, but what you mentioned, the old school diners, right? Those things are always fun. You know, there, when I went to Seattle a number of years ago, I guess almost 10 years ago now, uh, I remember going to a Johnny Rockets downtown Seattle inside of a mall. And what I really found interesting was the entire design of this place was supposed to be old school, right? You had like the blue and white tile checkered flooring. Uh, each table had its own little mini jukebox player. I mean, the entire aesthetic was super old school, and I, I really liked it. I got a kick out of it because growing up as a millennial, well, I guess, you know, maybe I'm a millennial, I'm 30, um, you don't see a lot of that anymore. And as someone who didn't really grow up with it, I can appreciate it now. So interesting, 877-399-9898. What's your favorite retro item? For things like this, I'm not sure there is a wrong answer. Because it's really just personal preference. Maybe you don't like anything retro. You can let us know. Give us a call. Give us a text. Let's connect with Evelyn out in Winnipeg. Evelyn, what is your favorite retro item? Well, you know, the thing is, okay, those those restaurants are cool, mm-hmm. right? Because I've, I've been to a couple of hard rock cafes and stuff like that, you know, across Canada and stuff like that. But with those retro, those retro new out, you know, those, uh, those vinyl, uh, um, new new machines that they came out with that looked retro, mm-hmm. right? Those were those were actually pr- pretty ideal. I also like the um, uh, the gumball machines. You know, like the old candy oh, machines yeah, yeah. Stuff like that that they would come up with. Yeah, well, you know, because we still have the ribbon candy. We still have the ribbon candy, and that's one of the old fashioned kind of uh, candies that are out there. So, yeah. So anything that goes oh, and with that toilet paper thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the situation is no one will pay for uh, no one will pay for the toilet. Right. No one. Right. Yeah, they'll they'll either go on 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 the uh, on the on the bus or they won't and they'll get off. Yeah. No. It's it's a good point. It's a definitely a good point. And people have been texting and saying pretty much the exact same things. Like, hey, I, I have to go to the bathroom just as much as anybody, but I'm not willing to pay for it. So it's a good point. Yeah, exactly. It's a pretty disgusting point, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, you, you you take care of yourself. And I'm talking to Johnny J, right? That's correct. Okay, well, you know, continue on with your, your nostalgia stuff. This is awesome. You always come up with the really good categories for the <laughs> well, evening, for Friday. Oh, yeah. great. I'm glad you enjoy it. Thank you so much for the call, Evelyn. Oh, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheers now. That's uh, Evelyn in Winnipeg. I love that. That's a nice little confidence boost for me. I'm, I'll take that happily. Catherine in Surrey, a good friend. Uh, welcome to The Shift. What's your favorite retro item? I totally miss the shortcakes. Do you remember oh, Queen? Yeah, yeah, for Strawberry sure. Strawberry shortcake with the little round cake and the ice cream. Right. Darn it. Why don't they have it anymore? Like, it was so good. It's a good question because, like, my Dairy Queen item growing up was the log cake. And, and for me, that was the most iconic thing. But if you're talking about the shortcake, I can, I can still appreciate a good shortcake, especially strawberry. Well, if you know where there's one, tell me because <laughs> no, no restaurants have them anymore. That's a good, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, we will do some investigative researching on this, Catherine. I'll give you an email if I find something around town. Thank you. <laughs> you got it. Thanks, Catherine. All right, that's Catherine in Surrey. Obviously, this topic is connecting with our listeners. Our text message inbox uh, is starting to blow up right now, and a lot of people calling in. We don't even have time to really get into headlines. 
not terribly important. So maybe we'll just stick with it. It's what the people want to hear. Steve in Winnipeg, welcome to the shift. What's your go-to retro item to celebrate tomorrow, or rather uh, Saturday? Oh, it'd be nice to have my 1969 uh, Fairlane Ford convertible. Oh, very nice. Do you you still have that or no? Yeah, it's here. We're rebuilding it, but we got to put Hawaiian shirts in the trunk <laughs> and some dark sunglasses and listen to the green onions. Hey, there you go. That's doing it right. I mean, you know, growing up, I, I never had a, a dad that was rebuilding cars. He was yeah. too busy working. Uh, but my whole experience with, like, a, a young kid growing up with TV and rebuilding cars was home improvement. You know, yeah. Tim Allen and <laughs> rebuilding that, uh, that hot rod he's got in the car. So I'm glad you can actually do it in person yourself. Well, you know what? It's it's just hilarious that uh, we go down the road and uh, you got to have a Hawaiian shirt, you got to have sunglasses, <laughs> and uh, you know a few road rockets. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Away we go, you know. Oh it's man, hilarious. Oh, that's great. Hey, Steve, thanks so much for the call here. Okay, thank you so much for your TV you or your it. radio show. Excuse me. Oh, you know, maybe we'll be on TV one day. You never know. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I'd like to see what you guys look like. <laughs> uh, nothing special. It won't impress you at all. Ah, uh, never mind. Appreciate you, Have Steve. A good day. Cheers. That's uh, that's Steve in Winnipeg. I, you know, I I'm having a lot of fun with this. I mean, um, I, I don't think it's terribly important that we have to get the headlines all the time. So forgive me for this one time. We're going to skip the all night headlines. We'll have another version for you later in the show, as we usually do. One more call before we hit the wall here. Let's uh, connect with Joan in Sylvan, Sylvan Lake, Alberta. Joan, welcome to the shift. Hi, thank you. All right, what's your uh, what's your go-to retro item? Well, you bring back memories of uh, the uh, Vancouver bus depot. Yeah. On the Greyhound. Oh, yeah. And the washrooms there cost you a dime. Oh, it did. Okay, so it this did. this was before my time a little bit. So uh, in, in the 1960s. Ah, there during, you go. Mid-60s. Did, but they had to have one free toilet, one free stall. Right, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. But did, did, also, they employed a woman who stood there and watched. So if you held, you paid your dime right, and then held the door open for the next person in line, she would come running ah, down. Ah, there you go. Shut. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, you, you don't want to mess with the bathroom lady. She will. No. She will make sure she gets her money. And I'm sure they paid her 65 cents an hour. Oh, boy. I don't even know if that's a good pay back in the day. I really don't. I don't have a reference point. That was minimum wage. Oh, gotcha. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Uh, And and does it make sense why there's no bathrooms in public transit for you now anymore, Joan? No, it doesn't make sense at all. Well, it's because she retired, and and so they they couldn't find a replacement. That's really what it comes down to. (laughs) And and the older you get, the more in need you are of having a washroom. Oh, yes, that's a very good point. And and also the younger you are. So there's it's that middle age where you just don't need it, but then the the two ages that are polar opposites need it the most. It's funny how that works. All right. Hey, yeah, Joan, thank you so much for the call here. You're welcome. All right. Thanks for your memories. Yeah, of course. I'm having fun with this as well. That's uh, that's Joan in Sylvan Lake, Alberta. I love this. Uh, we're going down memory lane together. Uh, I mean, some of our listeners uh, older than Leo and myself a little bit, but that's what makes this experience special is because I get to learn things with you as you just think back to memories of when you were a little bit younger and, and what was retro, th- I mean, what is retro now was kind of cool for you back then. I would love to learn more, 877 9898. This is the Shift Podcast. 
Let's bring in our good friend now, Andy Barrar. He's a technology and digital lifestyle expert at HandyAndyMedia.com. Something happening with Twitter. They've announced something called Superfollow, which could eventually mean you'll have to start paying for Twitter. Andy, thank you so much for giving us some time here tonight. Oh, my pleasure, John. Now, interesting news in the digital world today as Twitter announces something brand new. Now, it hasn't kicked in just yet, but over the past number of years, Twitter had been hinting at a revenue stream, which we didn't know what it was going to be because there are certain websites out there that allow you to subscribe to premium services, ad-free, things of that nature, whereas Twitter in its history had always been completely free. But now they have announced uh, this new thing called Super Follows, which basically will allow somebody to pay uh, to 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 unlock tweets from a you know from a business account or from a very popular influencer account. So walk us through exactly what this is, because it seems like a bold step into trying to maybe capitalize on the whole subscription service that seems to be very popular right now. Well, that's exactly it. And it looks like Twitter's taking a little bit out of Facebook's playbook and just kind of watching these other social media and all these companies, you know, come onto the scene, something works, it's it's a viable business model, and then they will copy it. And so we're seeing Twitter do something. So now Twitter with this super follow is being kind of part Patreon, part Clubhouse, part Facebook groups. So they're taking the best of all these things to try to find a way to monetize Twitter. And what they're trying to do is create what they call the super follow, which is basically allows content creators the ability to charge their followers for access to additional content. So they might still do free YouTube videos and other stuff on Facebook, like free daily content. But what they want to do is something more exclusive. Hmm. So for example, say you're into uh, gardening because of COVID, you're really into somebody you follow online. And suddenly they have just exclusive content that no one else can get. And what Twitter is trying to do is charge $4.99 and, and take a cut out of that, but then give that rest of the money to the content creator. So they're hoping essentially they could be like uh, a Patreon, but do it within Twitter's platform. Do you think this will be a popular move? Because part of what makes Twitter great is the fact that people know it's free. And for the large part, it's anonymous. Now, if you're going to have to attach like a credit card information or if you use PayPal, uh, we don't really know what kind of payment offers are going to be accessible through uh, the super follow system. But chances are you're going to have to link some sort of identification to your payment just so that it can be verified. That seems like a reason why somebody would look at this and say, no, not for me. No, thank you. Well, that's the big question is that when people think of things, it's kind of like the news. People, you know, got so used to getting the news online that it was really hard to create those, um, you know, bubbles to, to basically pay for news. And so that that might happen with Twitter as well, because people associate Twitter with just free tweets, something that you could do. But what they're really trying to do is create that free version, but then also a paid version. And, and that is something that you're seeing content creators do all the time. Whether it's, um, you know, here's my free content, but you have to subscribe to my, uh, my video series or my ebook. And so Twitter is trying to help content creators. They're basically trying to say, you've, you've created this following. Here's a way that you can monetize it. And you can spend special tweets just to a specific group or maybe just target specific people with certain interests because they're also creating uh, communities, which is essentially like Facebook groups. 
So if you have a certain niche, it could be cats, it could be sports, uh, you could then belong into that community and then get those type of tweets rather than just the daily tweets that you would get on your newsfeed. Are we going to see this trend eventually die out? Because you look everywhere now, like everything has a subscription, whether it's Amazon Prime, which you pay a monthly fee for, or uh, you, you could do it with, uh, as you mentioned, like Patreon, if you are a fan of certain people on online, social media accounts, you can pay to support them. It could be as low as $3 a month, so it's not totally expensive. But every single corner of the internet now seems totally fixated on wanting to attach themselves to the money-making machine. Well, exactly. And what we've seen, though, is we know that people out there are willing to support content creators that they like. We've seen that. It's been proven, especially with Patreon. The only question remaining now is if you're this content creator, if you're this the Kim Kardashians of the world and you have a huge following, what platform are you going to use to get paid? Because there are so many different options now. You got Patreon. You could, you know, now use Twitter's new feature. Of course, Facebook and YouTube, they're also having subscription models. So the, the world is changing. And what you're seeing is all these big platforms are competing to lure the content creators. Now, the typical content creator out there is not, you know, uh, in just one platform. They're not just on Instagram. They're on Instagram. They're on YouTube. They're on Twitter. They're, they're basically trying to broaden their reach. So the big question now is what platform are the content creators going to pick? And I think it's going to be the one that allows them to make the most money. And for content creators, this is actually something that I'm sure they welcome with open arms, because as you mentioned, it's another opportunity for them to maybe gain new followers or still uh, dedicate content to their longtime followers, their loyalists, if you will. And now we're seeing opportunities where if you wanted to just be a content creator. If what you want to be is a social media influencer, you could theoretically now see this as a long-term business model as opposed to something where maybe you were thinking, oh, I kind of want to do it, but how long could I actually sustain a business of this type? All of those concerns seem to be melting away. Like each month, there seems to be new ways for content creators to continue to sustain themselves online. Well, the typical story of a content creator right now is they're doing it as a side hustle. They have a certain interest and they're coming home from work or coming home from school. They're putting up their, their smartphone or their camera and creating content. And over time, they start to amass a following to the point where they could actually monetize from that. And you've seen this with YouTube for years, people creating YouTube channels that are, are hugely successful. But at the same time, and this is a lot of things, uh, an issue that a lot of people don't talk about when it comes to content creators, is they get a lot of fatigue. It is hard to keep creating content all the time, feeding the beast, essentially. And so, it, you know, a lot of them burn out before they can actually make it to the point where they can monetize it. So having these different platforms just shows that, yes, you could do it. It's scary, I'm sure, for parents out there who kid says, I'm going to be a YouTube star instead <laughs> of I want to be an astronaut. But um, it, it has really proven if you have the ability, if you have, you know, the, the, the ability to create that community around you, you can monetize it. And, and people have done it. And, it. and it blows me away. The most niche types of interests you could have out there. For example, during the pandemic, I learned to jump rope. And mm. there is someone that I follow online who has tutorial videos who started as a, as a side hustle and now has a full-on you know, production company. And that's what he does. And he makes his own ropes now and tries to make money on that as well. So he's making money on the content side, 
and also creating a product, a physical, tangible product that his community can buy. And I think it's quite genius. And it shows that anybody out there can, can do it as well if you just hold out long enough that you can create that community because it's not easy. It takes time. I feel for any student enrolling in business school nowadays because everything they seem to be learning is quickly just being thrown out the window because the model and the way we do business now is changing like all the time. And something like a social influencer wasn't regular jargon if you had gone to business school even like five or six years ago. And now, as you mentioned, there are uh, young people, even still college students that are making so much money and finding so much success online that they're able to make this a living full time. So uh, I have nothing but respect for content creators who are able to do that. I think you're absolutely right. It takes a lot of commitment. It takes a lot of time coming from somebody who's done, you know, working in audio production, like even making a five minute video is a lot of work and uh, it requires skills that not everyone has. So uh, it's, it's definitely something that uh, is inspiring. It's a little, uh, for me, it's like a brand new language. I just, I, I couldn't do it myself, but nothing but respect for people that do it on a regular basis. Andy, thank you so much for this because I think it's, uh, it's just another sign of how the internet is quickly evolving. And uh, it seems like consumers, they got to get ready because digital product and digital, I don't know, subscription, that just seems to be the new norm moving forward. It absolutely is. You know, so much has changed. Pretty much every marketing book in business school right now just needs to be thrown away mm -hmm. because it's right. It's, it's getting rewritten every year. Uh, it's just moving. The, the pace is moving faster than the books can be actually be written <laughs> because it's changing so fast. Yeah, that's the way the world goes here in 2020, uh, 2021, rather. Uh, we'll see what the future has in store. He is Andy Barrar, technology and digital lifestyle expert. You can find all of his work online at handyandymedia.com. Big thanks to you, friend. Well, my pleasure. It's the Shift Podcast. Let's welcome in a special guest, because right now there's a lot of things happening around the world and also right here at home. It's very easy for important news to just fly under the radar. And right now, I think everybody should know what's happening in the South China Sea. Now, that region of the world, as you can guess, it's south of China. So it's a very, very far away place from anybody here in Canada. But that being said, it is now a full-blown international showdown between a multitude of nations in that area and two of the world's superpowers to help break down the rising, escalating drama that's happening in the South China Sea we right now welcome Professor Paul Evans from the UBC School of Public Policy and Global Affairs and the HSBC Chair of Asian Research. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Professor. Oh, my pleasure to be with you. Glad we could have you here on the show tonight. And it's, uh, it's interesting. When I talk about the South China Sea with friends and family, there's a lot of people that just don't know why this matters or the fact that there are drastic military situations that are happening in that region of the world right now. Could you explain to us the background context for what is happening in the South China Sea and why that should matter to everybody, including, yes, us Canadians? Well, the South China Sea is a, a, a large body of uh, warm water uh, off the um, uh, uh, south of China and uh, east of the uh, uh, of Southeast Asia, uh, near the, uh, the between Malaysia, uh, Vietnam, uh, Taiwan, China, uh, areas uh, the Philippines. So this is a large body of water in between them that um, has been uh, 
key to livelihoods and commerce and life in that region for um, uh, 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 thousands of years. Um, it's a uh, large body of water that has become a kind of cauldron uh, of some tensions, problems that uh, are not altogether new, but that uh, in an era of a rising China and a more powerful China, in, a, in an era of greater trade and commerce through that region, uh, the South China Sea is, is perhaps the most contested body of water in the world. Uh, large body. We have Atlantic Oceans, we have Pacific Oceans, we have our Arctic, which are also places of some elements of contention. But the South China Sea matters. Uh, it matters uh, because of the um, territorial conflict uh, dispute uh, between uh, uh, six different countries in the region. It matters because it is a waterway uh, that um, uh, it has geopolitical implications for the United States and China. It's a point of their contention. Uh, and the South China Sea matters uh, in economic terms. Uh, it is the busiest, most active body of water on Earth uh, in terms of the number of vessels that transit through this big area of the South China Sea, uh, both um, basically natural resources flowing into the powerful economies of Northeast Asia, China, Japan, and container ships uh, flowing in the other direction uh, with uh, goods uh, that are being transported around the world. So it's a transportation zone. But I think for many uh, it, Canadians, and particularly younger generation, where the South China Sea could be and should be in our imagination is around its maritime uh, marine resources. Um, the South China Sea is home to something like one-third of the world's marine biodiversity. Its fish stocks provide the um, uh, protein to uh, a billion and a half people who, uh, who live on it. The coral reefs, the water itself, uh, and, the, and the life within it are, are, are very important from the, from the angle of, the, of our biosphere, our world. Uh, the world we live in. Our weather patterns are partly determined by um, uh, heat distribution through the South China Sea. It's in many ways we could call it the heart of the Pacific Ocean, which is nestled next to territory on the Asian side of that ocean. So here we are, uh, late February of 2021, and I heard you call it a zone of contestation. And to further prove that point. Over the past number of weeks, we know nations like Vietnam, Taiwan, the Philippines, neighboring countries along the South China Sea, have started increasing their military presence in that region, almost as a response, really, to what they see China doing, bringing in a lot of their own military presence and really upgrading the number of battleships, uh, aircraft carriers, things of that nature. And we know now the United States have been there for a long time, and they have recently sent a new destroyer uh, just to patrol those waters. 
I'm wondering, is there a risk of things getting violent or military clashes that would happen between some of these nations because tensions are escalating? Well, I, I think that the, the, uh, there are several countries <clears throat> claiming portions, or in the case of China, the full South China Sea as its territorial waters. Uh, and the, 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 the sovereignty issues were really not uh, uh, part of the agenda until after the Second World War and until really in the 1970s. And at that stage, several countries began staking out territorial claims, claiming this is ours uh, in ways that had uh, been hinted at before. But we're now, there are significant territorial and sovereignty disputes. And under the law of the sea, um, which made an effort to put a framework around uh, those, those territorial conventions, uh, that has, has not solved the issue because, in essence, China and some of the other countries do not accept all of the provisions of the law of the sea. So it, it, it has been there. And what is uh, one of the features of this conflict is that countries are building uh, uh, military bases on small islands in the region, it was actually the Vietnamese who started that in the 1970s, but it's China that is the big player. Um, other countries are also trying to uh, uh, define their territorial claims and build up their capabilities. But it's the Chinese scale of actions that uh, has changed the whole balance in the region. China has militarized, turned some small islands into uh, large military base operations, uh, putting in ray, uh, runways for aircraft to land on, military aircraft for radar stations and other things. So it's not China that is the only player in militarization of the issue, uh, but it is the big player. And the counterweight to Chinese actions uh, from a military perspective is not the other claimant states. China is just in a different category of capabilities and strength. The balancer, so to speak, is the United States. And uh, as you've mentioned, there are regular, in fact, frequent, now uh, U.S. naval operations in the South China Sea, not just passing through the sea, but, a, a, but coming close to the areas claimed by China and other claimants, including Taiwan, uh, that uh, to indicate that the sea is not owned by anybody, uh, that it is rather an international waterway. And in that sense, we see the United States and its naval operations, uh, freedom of, of navigation operations, very similar to what the United States feels about the Arctic Ocean uh, and our Northwest Passage, that that is not Canadian territory, but rather an international passageway. Uh, and it occasionally sends its submarines and other things through that area to make this clear. But in the South China Sea, the danger is the United States and China are not wanting to have a military conflict over the South China Sea, nor do the other claimant states. But with the number of naval operations in the region and the uh, efforts by the navies 
of China and, and other countries to push back uh, against uh, operations in areas they consider their own. Um, you have the risk of, uh, uh, of collisions uh, of naval vessels. You have the possibility of a, of a small incident, say with a fishing vessel, that would escalate up into the use of the naval forces in the region. So the fear in the South China Sea is not that it is going to be uh, uh, an area that big countries, that countries want to go uh, into military conflict, but that inadvertently they might go into it and it would escalate uh, because the number of naval vessels, the number of operations in the region are significant. And because of the stakes, uh, in the region, if things did escalate, this wouldn't be a kind of Falkland Islands issue. This would be something on a much bigger scale that uh, would involve the, the two, the world's two largest navies, which is the United States and the Chinese. All right, welcome back to The Shift, 877-399-9898, taking your responses and your reaction to the conversation happening right now with our guest. He is Professor Paul Evans from the UBC School of Public Policy and Global Affairs and the HSBC Chair in Asian Research. And Professor, we were talking about the situation here in the South China Sea that warrants closer inspection because of how dramatic that region of the world is quickly becoming. And we were just talking about the possibility of things getting out of control and a violent military clash perhaps happening between nations. You've talked on this already, but please elaborate further on the kind of role the South China Sea, that body of water, plays for the global economy, because really, that's what's driving everything else into motion. Um, I think that American motives are are complex, um, and that... um one of the key dimensions to America's interest is the military balance in the region. And as part of its um, uh, conflict or at least tension with China, uh, that uh, the South China Sea is a place that (laughs) those ships are there, uh, American naval vessels, uh, not so much to protect um, uh, open transportation, open commerce in the region, um, but also to watch very carefully Chinese submarines that are, part, uh, that are monitored in, in that part of, of the region in the, in the broad effort to contain Chinese naval operations internationally. So the motives are mixed. Um, and for many years, the United States did not get involved in the sovereignty claims. Who do those islands belong to? Uh, they wanted to maintain it as, as open international waters. Uh, but it has only been in the last uh, three or four years that the United States has started to land uh, in support of the specific claims of individual countries and in opposition to China's specific territorial claims, not just taking note of them but pushing back against them actively. So U.S. motives there are geopolitical in a confrontation with China. Uh, they do have an interest in maintaining commercial waterways being open. But in there, they may actually have common ground with China because no country depends more for free commerce through the South China Sea, the passage of those ships, those container ships and those uh, tankers, than does China. Its economy is built on it. 
And one of the reasons China pushes so hard on the South China Sea uh, is because it does not want that to be a choke point that could be used against it uh, in any kind of uh, conflict with uh, with the United States or with the West. So that's the reason this, this body of water is so darn complicated, so darn contested, uh, and is one that um, uh, does, as you put it, affect all of the world and does have an impact on us here in Canada in ways that um, uh, are, are often not discussed but are, are, are real parts of the equation. What Canadians think about what our government thinks, our Navy, uh, our military, and our diplomats think about that region is, is, is important, but not uh, as common a topic as, uh, as our own Arctic Ocean. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that's my next question here. Canada, in my opinion, finds itself in a very unique position with what's happening in the South China Sea. Obviously, you look at the history between Canada and the United States. They have been longstanding allies and partners as a result of our geographic proximity. I mean, they are our neighbors to the south. We are theirs to the north. It makes sense why these two countries have worked so closely together in military operations for a very long time now. And yet, when you now take a look at the global picture, Canada remains one of China's important economic trading partners. And maybe Canada depends on China as an economic trading partner more than China depends on Canada. So what kind of a role does Canada play here because of their relationship with both the U.S. and China? You know, it's a um, uh, interesting situation uh, that uh, Canada Canadians uh, are in in thinking about the South China Sea. Um, it's true. Uh, we certainly do not want to see military escalation in a region that is so central to the world economy, to global supply chains, uh, to transportation of goods. Uh, we, we, we don't want to see a conflict, and we don't want to see one that would escalate into major conflict between the United States and China. But there's other, there's other kinds of issues in the region that um, Canadians uh, have been involved with in past. Canada has, uh, for, for, for 15 years, tried to broker discussions among all of the claimant states about what could be rules of the road for the region, how tensions could be decreased. And the reason Canada could lead in those diplomatic efforts uh, was that we are not a claimant state. We do not have a stake in the game and uh, in, the, in the same way. But like many countries, Australia and many of the world, we're very concerned about how things play out. So the issue for Canadian policymakers has been whether to frame the South China Sea problems and all of this, this, uh, the, the, the <laughs> all of the dimensions that we've been talking about, should it be framed as essentially a military challenge where we should be devoting more resources? Should we have a naval presence in the South China Sea in support of the United States uh, 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 and in support of? Uh, particular ideas around freedom of navigation. Do we have a military role there? Or is it that we have a uh, diplomatic role, going back to trying to be a broker, a mediator in some of the disputes? And I think the third dimension for Canadians is what to do about those marine resources. 
fish stocks in the South China Sea matter as a protein source for many people. And in Canada, we are certainly familiar with what happens when fish stocks decline dramatically off, off one of our coasts, which was the East Coast fishery collapse 20 years ago. So uh, a recognition of that South China Sea as a place of marine resources, of biodiversity, uh, that puts it on the screen for us ecologically. At my university, the University of British Columbia, uh, we're doing considerable research on fish stocks and marine resources in the South China Sea because marine resources are a global resource. Uh, and um, their um, conservation, their preservation, in the face of these geopolitical and sovereignty disputes, it is a very difficult land. Uh, excuse me, it's a very difficult body of water. If we think our Arctic and the Northwest Passage is complicated and has big impact for the world in terms of uh, ice melting, transportation uh, links, the South China Sea is already there. And from a Canadian perspective, we hope that the Arctic does not become the kind of uh, air, uh, zone of contention that the South China Sea is, uh, and how we build multilateral institutions, uh, how we uh, use our diplomatic and, in some ways, our military resources in the Arctic um, can be looked at through the prism of the South China Sea. So uh, <laughs> the... Uh, and with, from the objective is the, if the Arctic becomes a zone of contention like the South China Sea is, that is a special risk because it brings in Russia, the United States, uh, as well as China and several other countries, and turning waterways that should be for peace and cooperation uh, into uh, zones of contention. Well, that's fascinating. So it seems what's happening right now in the South China Sea is going to act as a precedent for what could happen eventually down the road, much closer to home here in Canada, with the Arctic. And that area could soon become a geopolitical hotbed, similar to what we're seeing here in the South China Sea. And I'm wondering, Professor, in order for a resolution to eventually come across that would work for everybody, are we going to have to see nations making compromises in that region of the world? Or could we see longstanding changes taking place either by China or by some of the other neighboring nations with the assistance of the United States? Well, I think, uh, John, that that, is the that has been the aspiration of several countries over many years, like Canada, some of the claimants in the region, Indonesia, uh, which uh, borders the South China Sea but isn't a claimant state uh, to, uh, to uh, islands and others in the South China Sea. Um, and uh, the the framing of it as a uh, uh, as an area for common development, common prosperity, uh, common interests, uh, uh, both commercial, um, is, is 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 a powerful idea, but it runs headlong into geopolitical uh, confrontation between the United States and China. This is an area where navies are playing muscular games in direct competition with each other. Uh, and there are fish resources, um, there are hydrocarbons that are at stake. So nationalism, sovereignty, geopolitics run contrary to those aspirations for a, a commonwealth 
uh, of interest in the region. And how it plays out is, as you framed it, exactly right. Um, this is uh, where a global interests and immediate national interests and power politics confront each other directly. And how it plays out in, the, uh, in that particular region, uh, I think, will have implications for things immediately on our periphery, which is in the Arctic Ocean. Because the Arctic's future could be the South China Sea's current situation if we don't frame the issue properly and uh, try to uh, forestall that geopolitical competition and the, uh, the, the, the battle of nations rather than the plane of cooperation for peoples. Very, very interesting stuff. Uh, the South China Sea will continue to be a hotbed of geopolitical activity until we eventually see a resolution. We have our fingers crossed. Nothing too drastic, nothing too violent breaks out. But as you read the headlines, military presence increasing from all nations in that region, it is uh, quickly becoming a important chess match between some of those uh, nations as the South China Sea acts as a gateway for a large bulk of all Asian trade. He is Professor Paul Evans from the UBC School of Public Policy and Global Affairs and the HSBC Chair in Asian Research. Professor, appreciate you so much taking the time to speak with us tonight here on the show. I think it was a very insightful conversation, and I look forward to the next chance that you and I uh, will have to connect. Thank you. I very much appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. It's the Shift Podcast. For now, let's get into it. Learning Portuguese with Uncle Leo. Hola, Shift Heads. It's time to learn Portuguese with Leonardo. So classy, so sophisticated, and so smart. We say thank you to Nikki Reitmeyer as the official voice of this show. Uh, tonight's lesson, uh, we're going to go through some of the elements that this show has been about. So, Leo, let's get into it. Lesson number one. Since we're talking about Retro Day, how about I like it old school? How does somebody say that? Yeah, it's funny thing because I like it old school. This is such a new like expression. Like it's from the last few years, but it's totally popularized because we don't have a literal translation. But that expression came out around I don't know five six years ago, hmm. and, and everybody uses it right now. Because raiz, uh, which is what you're gonna say. Means root, like the uh, the root, like the basis of the tree. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so that's the word. But it, here is a you know, it's it's a connotative sense because it means like root. So I, it would mean I like it at school. Eu gosto de coisa raiz. Eu gosto. Eu eu gosto. Eu gosto de coisa de coisa raiz. Raiz. There you go. Wow, that's uh, that's tricky. Yeah. But you, you're telling me that people say it. And it's a trendy thing to say now. Yeah, huh. because it's either there's a yeah, it's there's a duality in Portuguese because you're you're either raiz, which is root, like you know, avant-garde, you know, old school, or if you're too progressive, you're Nutella. Oh, right. Like, really? oh, that's it's either raiz or oh. Nutella. Oh, yeah, interesting. Right, right. Oh, yeah, and okay. there were memes made about it, but yeah, so that there you go. See yeah. the shift. We're as trendy as you can get. Number one show in Brazil. <laughs> yes. Don't fact check that. Just just take it from me. Hopefully. All right. Uh, lesson number two, and this is going back to our are you okay question. Uh, run from the zombie, Leo. Run from the zombie. How does one say this? 
Fuja do zumbi, John James. Fuja do zumbi. Yeah. Oh, that's nice and easy. Anyone can say that. Fuja do zumbi. Do, do, é, do zumbi. Do zumbi. Yeah. Fuja do zumbi. Because you're scared, right? Yes, of you're course. Like, yeah. Fuja do zumbi. No. Fuja do zumbi, John James. <laughs> I like that. It's nice and dramatic. And so I'm sure, you know, if they, if they you know, have a, a Portuguese a translation of some of these zombie movies, you might hear that exact line. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Uh, we talked about how Twitter is rolling out, potentially, a brand new subscription-based service. So with that note, follow me on Twitter. How does somebody say this money-grabbing line? Siga me no Twitter. Siga me no Twitter? Yes. Siga me no Twitter. Siga me no Twitter. Yes, because the exclamation here. On that note, let's plug your Twitter account. Oh, my Twitter account, at LeoDS. Like D as in David, S as in Savior, Coelho, my last name. C-O-E-L-H-O. Yes. C-O-E-L-H-O. Yes, Coelho. exactly. Uh, no Twitter. Yeah. I like that. And then finally, everybody calm down. This, of course, in response to what we learned about the South China Sea with the professor from UBC, Paul Evans. Everybody calm down. Todo mundo se acalme. Todo mundo se acalme. Se acalme. Se acalme. Yes. There Todo mundo se acalme. <laughs> exactly. Everybody calm down. Just Don't panic. breathe. Yeah. South China Sea. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's move into some of our listener requests. And uh, we, <laughs> we heard this from Catherine in a call earlier talking about retro. Catherine wants to know, how do you say, I miss strawberry shortcake? Uh, que saudades da torta de morango. Okay. All right, John. Let's get straight. Que saudades. Que saudades. Que saudades. Yes. Da torta. Da torta. Yes. De morango. De morango. Yes. Morango means strawberry. Morango so, means strawberry. Yeah. Okay. Even fruit. that alone I'll take. Yeah. Uh, que saudades da torta. Morango. Yes. Okay. Oh, wow, that's pretty good. That's, 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 awesome. that's a little tricky. That's a little tricky. Yeah, but you got it. All right, we got this one from Sizzling Steve. Wanted to know how you say, hey, you kids, get out of that jello tree. I think that's a, is that a commercial? So I don't know. I don't know, yeah. I don't know where this hey, line is from. But yeah, it's, it's a popular line for somewhere. Steve probably knows. So, hey, crianças, saiam dessa árvore de gelatina. Oh, my goodness. Oh, boy. Hey. Crianças. Crianças. Yes. Saiam dessa árvore. Saiam dessa árvore. Saiam dessa árvore. Árvore. Yes. Saiam dessa árvore. De gelatina. De gelatina. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I can't do that all in one go, I think. That is a... Who says, hey, you kids, get out of that jello tree? I, well... <laughs> I don't, I don't know. know. All right, uh, this one from Derek. Uh, this in response to the retro conversation. Where is the vinyl store or where is the record store? So if you want to refer to vinyl store, so you're going to say, onde é a loja de vinil? Onde é a loja de vinil? A loja de vinil. Yes. Vinil? Yes, that's okay. vinyl. Okay. <laughs> Or if you want to say the record store, right? Or where is the record store? You're going to say, onde é a loja de música? Onde é a loja... Uh, nope. Onde é a loja de música? Música. Música. Yes. Música. Yes. I always sound Italian for some reason. Yeah, because as you see, uh, loja means store. 
So that's uh, that's why you see lodging at one okay. of the Okay. That, that lodging me store. Now, Sorry, please, vinyl for music here. Not going to lie to you. For the most part, when we do these Portuguese translations, uh, are they helpful? Like, are they? Are you ever going to use them in a day-to-day situation in Brazil? I hope so. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is pretty common. Like, uh, what do you mean? Well, these questions, even if you're not talking about vinyl or music, but you're asking direction. That's true. You're gonna you're That's gonna say onde é for where thing. Like if you want to go to the bathroom, onde é? You're not gonna say record store, but you're gonna say the restroom, which is banheiro. That's a good point. So yeah, I mean th- there are applicable ways that you can use some of these th- these lessons that you learn. But we got this request from Daryl, who is directly looking for the most useful sentence you could probably carry with you when you go down to Brazil. So from Daryl, wants to learn how to say, <laughs> what is the phone number for the Canadian embassy? Yeah. Was, Very useful. Yeah, he's going to go there and he's going to say, hey, uh, qual é o telefone da embaixada canadense? <laughs> Daryl's not going to say <laughs> any of that. Yeah, he's probably going to make hand signals. <laughs> hey. Okay. <laughs> Kel? Qual? Qual? É o telefone? É o telefone? Da embaixada? Da embaixada? Canadense. Canadense. Is that how yeah. you say Canadian? Yeah. Canadense? Yeah. Okay. All right. Qual é o telefone? Da embaixada? Da embaixada? Embaixada. Baixada. Yes. Embaixada. 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 <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Canadense. Canadense. Yes. All right. Qual é o telefone da Embaixada Canadense? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right, Daryl. You put some effort in getting success. Daryl, whatever you happen to do in Brazil, uh, I hope you never have to use that line because I hope you never need like a direct connection to the Canadian embassy. But if you do, well, now you know. And I don't have the number I know from We do not top, have the number. But no. I can give you. <laughs> Stuart says, just use Google Translator when in Brazil. Yeah, but what if you don't have Wi-Fi, right? Well, you don't exactly. want to pay for your roaming fee. You, know, you guys are thinking Brazil is like a Canada, which you have Wi-Fi hotspots in the street. Not like that. Like, oh, yeah, that's right. 3G there is pretty bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the roaming, right? Just just yes. the fees if you're uh, having yes. to pay for international minutes, not so easy. So slow down, Stuart. We're trying to help you out here now. Daryl also had this very useful and fun request. Where is the closest bar to the police station? See, this is where Portuguese get, gets more practical because to say police station, we only have one word. For oh, really? Police station. Oh, okay, okay. Hey, you're gonna say. Onde, onde fica o bar mais próximo da delegacia? Hmm. Onde fica o bar mais próximo, próximo da delegacia? Da delegacia. 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 Cia is the stress Okay, level. okay. Delega- delegacia is the police station, right? Yes. There you go. That's the one word. Yeah. So they take two words, make it, make it into one. Yeah. Nice and convenient. Onde fica o bar mais próximo Da delegacia. Próximo. Próximo. Yes. Próximo. Mais próximo da delegacia. This is, uh, this is good stuff. Daryl is coming in with like just the totally 100% useful, uh, very, very handy requests. And then what I love is that Catherine's just like, tell me how I say I miss strawberry shortcake because that's what matters to me today. Que saudade da tota. It's actually pretty good, yeah. I haven't, I haven't had it in a long time. So there, there's no wrong request here. We're here at your service, Professor Leo. Think of this as a free lesson. 
you might often have to pay somebody to teach you how to speak Portuguese. We give you a chance to do it for free once a week. Yeah, and off the air, John was doing learning Spanish off the air with this me. This is true. This is true. <laughs> Soy muy buenos. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gracias, so was, yeah. Gracias, amigo. De nada, All George right. Jimmy. All right. Arriba. <laughs> Another episode of Learning Portuguese with Leo. If you have a last-minute request, get them in 877-399-9898. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.